Welcome to Tales from 757 Podcast, Stories from Hampton Roads, Episode 4. 757 is not only the telephone area code for Hampton Roads, Virginia. For many, it's a state of mind, a way of being, but also very much a place with a past. Today's guest is Virginia Beach native Al Tuning, historian, author, actor, and reenactor. Today's episode looks at the story of the wreck of the dictator and the honeymoon cruise. Later there was the Easter shipwreck. Do you know Easter of what year that was? Where did that happen? And what's the story behind that one? That was 1891. And that was a ship called the Dictator, which is probably the most famous shipwreck in Virginia Beach. It's a Norwegian ship. And it was on its way from Florida to Hartlepool, England, with a cargo of lumber. Lumber has always been a valued resource. The English have lived on that island for hundreds of years. They've cut down all their trees. Right. So, you know, these nice tall pine trees are perfect for masts and spars for ships and planking and all that. So the dictator is going from Florida to Hartlepool, England with Captain Jorgensen. His father was Captain Jorgen. He's Jorgen's son. son. His wife, Joanna Pauline Jorgensen, and their five-year-old son named Carl. <laughs> Carl is not a Norwegian name. Right. Captain Jorgensen, whose father was Captain Jorgen, Joanna Pauline Jorgensen, and their son, Carl Zeeland Jorgensen. Zeeland is not a Norwegian name, but little Carl was born in New Zealand, ah. and so he had that name. That just gives you some aspect of how well-traveled Captain Jorgensen and his crew and his ship were. They were old hands. Most of them were Norwegian, with the exception of the ship's mate, who was a Frenchman named John Baptiste. So they're heading for Hartlepool, England, by way of Bermuda. Mm -hmm. When they reach Bermuda, then they turn and sail uh, due east from there. But as they approach Bermuda, they encountered a rather severe storm. It damaged one of the masts on the ship. One of the lifeboats got ruined. Ship started taking on water. So Captain Jorgensen, much of the relief of his crew, turned back from for Chesapeake Bay so they could make repairs. This would make a great movie. The captain's hidden agenda was this was his final trip. Right. He was going to turn over control of the boat when they got to the home port in Moss, Norway. And then he and Joanna and Carl were going to settle in a little house, something Joanna had wanted ever since they got married. Carl had never even lived in a house at five years old. He had bought a house, and he was going to surprise his wife right. you know, with this. So when the crew reported that the ship was leaking, he tended to kind of, it's like, oh, we pump. Yeah. Oh, we've got to get there. So finally they turned around and came back. The storm continued for about three days between Bermuda and here. They only had dead reckoning. They, no stars out at night. There was gale force winds and rain. Finally, on Good Friday, 1891, wow. they, they see land. Land, ho! And the yeah. captain comes up. Everybody comes up and looks around and says, hey, it's land. The captain says, guys, I got good news. And, well, for the benefit of the listeners who don't know Norwegian, I'm going to translate all this. Okay, well, the captain said, okay, yes, there's land. Uh, and I have good news and bad news. The land is good news. Bad news is, I'm not sure where we are. <laughs> I do know that we're south of where we want to be. We want to be at the Chesapeake Bay. Right. And the winds have blown us south. Right. So I know when we find those lighthouses... At Chesapeake Bay, all we have to do is turn left and we're safe. Everybody was okay with that. So they, sure. they started heading north, doing whatever tacking was necessary to go right. back and forth. And still storming at this point. Oh, absolutely. Keep in mind, too, that in those days, the dunes were 70 to 80 feet high. Right. So one, extra, one side of the section of the beach looked 
pretty much like another one. Right. After several hours, they got to a point, short few hours after sunrise, and they scream out, there's the cape. Captain Jorgensen comes out, and, and he looks, and he goes, no, that's not it. John Batiste says, oh, yes, it is. And the captain goes, no, look, they have two lighthouses. Not just one. They have two lighthouses at Cape Henry. I don't see one of them. And John says, well, Captain, this has been a horrible storm. It's possible that the lighthouses are extinguished or maybe even right. destroyed. But I've been here before. This right. is Cape Henry. And, of course, that's what the crew wanted to hear. Right. So when the captain tried to say no, they were pretty adamant, no, this we need to turn left. So very reluctantly, he did. And... Not to be a snob, but the captain was right. Right. Okay, they were wrong. Where they were is a place called False Cape, okay. where people falsely mistake it for Cape Henry. Right. And as a result, they run aground. But because yeah. the captain had come in so cautiously, he was able to recover and kind of beat his way up the shore. So about 11 a.m., the people at the Princess Anne Hotel, which is a huge hotel between what is now 17th Street and 20th Street. It was huge. It took up three blocks. It did. Wow. And, I mean, they had train depot there. They had an electric generator. Mm-hmm. This was the place to be. Easter weekend, they had 400 guests yeah. in the hotel. So they're eating breakfast, and they see this beat-up ship come up the coast. It's foggy, rainy. They, they can't get a good look at it. But they just watch it go from left to uh, right to left, going, mm-hmm. going north. They don't realize that a few miles up the beach, it runs aground. Mm-hmm. I'd say that to people on the ghost walk and... They're from Nebraska. They don't know what running aground means. Right. It sounds like a good thing, and yeah, yeah. it sort of is. You know, well, you're on the ground, but you're still in water that's right. 20 feet deep. Right. You know, and, and, cold, you. and ships aren't supposed to be on the ground. Yeah, you yeah. Know? When a ship's on the ground, it's no different than a barn. And we know what happens to barns when they flood; they fall apart. And so, to make a long story short, the dictator started to fall apart. The surfmen were there. They were able to set up a breaches buoy. They brought several people in on the Bruce's buoy, but then the mast broke off and they, they couldn't do that. And the ship started to break up really badly. So Captain Jorgensen tried to get Joanna to go across on the Bruce's buoy, but she was scared to death. She wouldn't do it. She wanted to be with her husband. As the ship's falling apart, she and Carl and the captain and the first mate find a, a hatch cover. It's up against the side of the ship. Captain Jorgensen gets on the hatch cover and Joanna hands the baby down to him. He's holding the baby in one hand, trying to get Joanna down from the ship, and John Batista's trying to help her. And then that big wave that we've been talking about comes and, and tips over the cargo hatch, jumps the captain mm-hmm. in the ocean, okay, but he's holding Carl tight. Mm-hmm. So he scrambles back up to the cargo hatch, and they try again. And then that wave comes back and washes him overboard. And this time, Captain Jorgensen comes up without Carl. It's, oh, my God. you know. So he's diving around trying to find Carl. Joanna's absolutely screaming because right. her husband and her son are gone. If this was a movie, this would be a commercial break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Hodges and Haunts costumed interpreters bring history to life in a way that is both educational and entertaining. Here's a short clip from a program we call Paranormal or the Normal. Orbs are believed to be balls of energy. A real smart guy named Albert Einstein said about energy, energy cannot be created and it cannot be destroyed. It just goes from one form to another. Then another smart guy named Thomas Edison came up with an idea that what runs our body, not our spirit or our soul, but what runs our body is energy. Well, balls of energy. Well, it can't be destroyed, so when we die, these balls of energy are just released. He called them life units. And it was his theory that sometimes if a person was strong-willed, these life units would stick together. 
Hi, I'm Al Tuning, owner and creator of Histories and Haunts. Thank you, and I hope you'll remember us when you're planning something special for a school presentation or a community event, or you're looking for a public speaker, or maybe just some good family fun. As you've seen, we have an awful lot to offer. If you have questions about anything on the website, please contact me and I'll respond as quickly as I can. Al can be found online at www.historiesandhaunts.com or by phone at 757-498-2127. Now back to our show. Captain Jorgensen ends up on the beach. He approaches the surfmen who were there. It's late in the afternoon. There's a few people that have survived, but they're still missing seven people. Joanna, Carl, and John Batista among those. Okay, so they search and they find, uh, I think, find two of the bodies. The next morning, Saturday, weather after a storm is always beautiful. So it was a beautiful day. The people at the hotel are looking out, and it, it must look like Lowe's on Father's Day or something. There's right. just piles of lumber everywhere right. along the beach because right. it was a wooden ship carrying wood. Right, okay, right. So that's everywhere. So they go out to find out if there's anything they can do. They've heard about right. the shipwreck now and that people are missing. And so they go through piles of lumber looking for bodies. And by the end of the day, they found all but three. Ultimately, they find Joanna and John Batista kind of together, mm -hmm. but they don't find Carl. Mm -hmm. He's presumed lost. So over the next few days, they get the crew, the survivors, gathered together. They bury the dead in uh, Elmwood Cemetery in Norfolk. The people at the hotel contribute hundreds of dollars and give it to Captain Jorgensen for the families of the, of the people that have died. Mm -hmm. And so he gets on a train and he goes back up to Philadelphia where the shipping headquarters are. In the meantime... That's all fact. Right. Here's where the legend comes in. The next week, a few miles south of where this all happened, Sunday morning, young man gets up early to go fishing. He's got his fishing nets. He wades into the water. He stumbles over something. He reaches down. He pulls out body of a, what appears to be a young boy. Doesn't know what to do. This is just a little fishing community, but the preacher would know. So he takes the body to the church. It's too early for the preacher to give up. So he just lays him on the steps. Uh -huh. He goes back and does his fishing. Ministry gets up, comes to the door, opens the door to take in the sun, looks down, ooh, dead body, shipwreck, seen it before. Uh -huh. We have no way of knowing who this is. You know, right. we'll just, you know, we'll bury him in the church cemetery. It's no sense, it's tragic. No sense in upsetting the parishioners. Right. So they bury him in the church cemetery. So the next day, Monday, everybody's back to work. Customarily, they all gather at the little, kind of like a general store, trading post, whatever you want to call it. They have a, a wood burning stove and everybody gathers around. And you know, this is April, still a little chilly in the morning. So they're gathered around the potbelly stove talking about what they're going to do, you know, where they're going to plow, where right. they're going to fish, whatever else. And somebody right. says, did anybody else hear a baby crying last night? Huh. And somebody else is like, yeah, who was that? And it, mm -hmm. next thing you know, everybody's pitched in, like, small community. Right. No, nobody has a baby. Right. You know, does somebody have visitors or whatever we don't know about? So anyway, kind of shrug it off. Next day, same thing. Next day, now people are pissed because they can't sleep when they right. have a baby. They find they, baby. Their parents, yeah. you know, and, and <laughs> something's obviously wrong. The baby's lost yeah. and yeah. all that. In the meantime, a young man, not the same young man, or perhaps the same young right. man who went fishing. Don't know. Right. Somebody rode his horse along the dunes to the little town of Virginia Beach because he needed something that they didn't have in their little right. 
So as he rides past the Princess Anne Hotel, he sees a group of people gathered around something. As he gets closer, he realizes it's, it's a figure of a woman. It's actually the figurehead of the dictator. Mm-hmm. Kind of ironically, it washed up right on the beach in front of the Princess Anne Hotel. So he gathers around and he hears the story about the shipwreck and he hears that the captain's wife was killed and the baby's missing. That was a forehead slap. <laughs> For oh, those of you that can't visualize this, uh, yes. <laughs> back on his horse, runs, gallops down to the town, hits the ground running. Listen, everybody, shipwreck, little boy's missing. That's got to be who we hear crying. We need to find it. So they all organize. And as they're heading out to look, somebody, they go by the church and the preacher's out in the garden. Or it's like, oh, preacher, if we ever needed God's help, we need it now. Mm-hmm. There's a little boy who's lost in a shipwreck. And we're trying to find him. And the preacher goes, well, I know where he is. Well, you do? Well, take us to him. He said, sure, come over here. Right here in this hole. <laughs> right here in this freshly dug grave. And they all stood there just mouths open. They're right. like, no, no. That, that can't be, because we've heard him crying. And then this older woman goes, well, of course he's crying. He wants to be buried with his mother. Mm-hmm. So presumably they dug him up. They took him to Elmwood Cemetery, buried him next to his mom. And crying stopped. Fast forward, this area is now Back Bay National Wildlife Refuge. And that was federal land. Nobody ever went on it for decades. Right. Then they had a problem with two things. Overpopulation of deer... Feral hogs, I mentioned before, the ships carry hogs for food, and when the ships wreck, the hogs survive, and it only takes two generations for them to go feral. So now we've got these huge wild boar. Hundreds of pounds. And so they allowed hunters to come out there a couple times a year and hunt for boar and, and deer. All right. Well, this went on for, again, probably decades, and then the word got back from the hunters' families, you know, that's a nice park powers that be arranged that it was a day park. You could go there and have lunch or whatever else in progression of time. Sure, we'll make it a little camping area. You can camp here if you want. Uh, And the story goes that shortly after they opened the campgrounds, the park rangers going through, asking everybody, you know, we're so proud of our park. What do you think? Oh, it's wonderful. You know, we love it. You know, Mm -hmm. I just wish whoever's baby that was would stop crying. (laughs) (laughs) They were astonished. They Mm -hmm. checked around, no babies. So the explanation was coyotes. Hmm. Now, so, I mean, this story goes back to like the 1960s. Right. They say we have coyotes here now, but in the 1960s, we did. We have dogs, okay, but we didn't have coyotes. We do have dogs, yes. don't we, Cal? And I, I would tell people in the ghost walk, they'll tell you that it's coyotes. I don't believe it. Just like when you go in the ocean, if it hasn't, ha- and again, I'm talking to visitors, if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. You'll pass through a very cold spot in the ocean. A lot of people started bobbing their head up and down, you know, and you're thinking, okay, did somebody not pay for the water heater or did everybody in the city flush at one time and it was cold water? And I said, you can go to the aquarium and they'll tell you, oh no, that's a thermal bubble. And I said, that's, that's not true. When you're swimming through one of those cold spots, you're swimming where somebody drowned and it could have been Carl or whatever else, you know, and I got a, I got a, a, a letter from a guy about three months later. He goes, thanks a lot. We were on vacation. My kids wouldn't go in the ocean because of you. <laughs> sure. He wasn't angry. Right, he right. Just, oh, by right. the way. Kind of like the Jaws effect. Yeah. A later story in the book is called The Honeymoon Cruise, but I s- tend to think this doesn't sound like a happy ending because it's in a shipwreck book. Oh, it is. It is a happy oh, ending. Oh, well, that's good. Great. Yeah. After the last one, we need a happy ending. Yeah. What happened was, this was 1889, again in April. Mm-hmm. We have most of our 
with the exception of the hurricane season, April, we have a lot of nor'easters and stuff. This ship called the Benjamin Poole, Benjamin F. Poole, washes ashore. It's not damaged. It was just an extremely high tide, and it washed ashore. So they struggle with it, try to get it off, can't get it off. Most of the crew leaves because it's, it's been several weeks and it's still aground. So most of the crew leaves. But if they leave, if nobody stays on board the ship, it becomes open game. You know, first person out can salvage it. Yeah. So a couple of guys stayed on the ship, the captain being one of them. This happened in April of 1889. Now, in June of 1890, the ship is a thing. People mm-hmm. come out there to visit the ship because sure. when the storm was over, it's high and dry. Right. There's no water around it. It's right. just, it's just So it's not being beat up by the surf or anything. No, it's just sitting there. Yeah. And they've decided it took a high tide to bring it in. The next high tide we'll get, we'll take it out. In the meantime, one person would stay on the ship and the other would go into town and they became friends and people would come out on the boat to visit and all this kind of stuff. Well, the captain met a young lady. They got married in June of 1890. Happened in April, so this is June. Yeah. So they spent their honeymoon right. on, on the ship. Finally, uh, in July... No, they got married in July of, of 1890. And then it was September of 1890 that they finally got a flood and wow. the ship went out. Wow. So, so not a tragic shipwreck so at like all. like a year a, and a half. Yeah, 17, 17 months. Wow. wow. That's, that's just crazy. But I mean, when, when they got yeah. married, you know, they were yeah. honeymooners. People would come out, bring them dinner sure. and all that sure. kind of stuff. They were celebrities. And, and Did they have to dig like a, a trench around the ship or anything when the tide was going to be coming, or did it actually just get floated off? It just got floated off. Wow. From all accounts, it was a flat-bottom boat, yeah. like, like a lot of boats and, were. Yeah, it was a coast-wise, some kind of a, yeah. almost like a sailing barge of sorts. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's just, that's a really neat story. <laughs> well, I've seen pictures of huge, like, six-story buildings. Right, in the middle right. Of the and I'm sure they took pictures and first inexpensive cameras, so people probably took a lot of photos of it. Yeah. Yeah, flat-bottom, so it's sitting right there on the hard... And, that was a big four-masted ship, yeah, too. Yeah. Was that a, like another lumber ship, coast-wise cargo ship of some sort? I believe so, yeah. yes. Yeah. Tune in next time when we'll continue our conversation without tuning. Thanks for joining us on 757 Tales, Stories from Hampton Roads. Mm-hmm.